Ah, Maria, welcome to First Up. It is Rahina, that's Monday, the 10th of October. Call Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, we get the latest on Thursday's mass shooting at a childcare centre in Thailand, in this part of the world. It's been all about new local leaders. Uh, and this morning on the show, it's no different. We speak to the newly elected mayors of Coromandel and Nelson, and uh, out of the few left of centre candidates to prevail, Wellington's new mayor, Tori Fano reckons the local government election process badly needs a rethink. Do away with postal voting. So many people didn't receive their voting papers. And let's go back to the classic in-person voting, voting booths all across the city or all across the towns. Maria, welcome to First Up. We begin this morning in the USA and joining us um, from the Big Apple is our correspondent, Catherine Furkin, who's here today. Morning, Catherine. How are you? Hi there, Nathan. Really well. So the midterm elections, they're the big uh, political story of the moment. So tell us how that's looking with the uh, the battle to control the Senate, because it's around 50-50 at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really interesting situation right now here in the US. I mean, we've been discussing for a while how split the country is here on their politics. And in many ways, America seems more divided than ever. And that is something that we are really seeing playing out in the latest polling. Uh, We're just one month out now from the midterms. And at this stage, the Democrats and Republicans are probably poised to win 50 Senate seats each. Now, of course, we were expecting that the midterms would give us some indication into which way the 2024 presidential election might go. But the only thing we can really gather from this right now is that it is going to be ridiculously tight. What's quite interesting uh, is having a look at the issues that are resonating with voters, like many places in the world right now, things like the economy, specifically inflation and what that's doing to the cost of living here continues to be top of mind for voters. But in the swing districts, it's some of the more controversial and emotionally charged topics like women's rights and gay marriage that appear to be really helping people to sort of frame their decision on which way they'll vote. Mm. Uh, someone who I have just been baffled by, uh, I, he's in politics now. When I was a kid, I knew him as a guy that ran around with an American football with a helmet on. Herschel Walker, interesting guy. Abortion, obviously uh, a, a huge political issue there. Tell me the latest on the Republican candidate, Herschel Walker. Well, that's a really, really good question. I mean, I was just saying that some of those emotionally charged topics like women's rights are probably going to decide some of those swing swing districts. Herschel Walker is running in the Georgia state. It's one of the most competitive races in the Senate contest for this midterm slate, one that actually could be instrumental in deciding control of the chamber. And uh, Herschel Walker, he has been in the headlines recently for all the wrong reasons. We've just heard allegations that are uh, he was he was accused of paying for a woman's abortion in 2009. This controversy has really rocked his campaign. Again, today now we are hearing that he actually apparently uh, tried to pay for her second pregnancy abortion two years later. Now, according to this woman, uh, he refused the request and their relationship then ended. But the reason this is so scandalous and causing such issues for Walker is that he has been outwardly opposed to abortions. In fact, in late May, he said he supports a full ban on the medical procedure with no exceptions. He's previously denied that first allegation of paying for a woman's abortion. We haven't yet heard how he's going to respond to these new allegations that he was apparently asked to pay for a second pregnancy termination. 
All right, we'll keep an ear out for that one. And finally, the January 6th committee hearings are continuing. I believe they're being held uh, again this week. What should we expect from those? Yeah, we've finally got a date now for what's expected to be the the final January 6th hearing. It's going to happen on Friday, October 14. That's in New Zealand time. In essence, this session will really wrap up the committee's work before it takes a break to uh, prepare a report into its findings. Unlike previous hearings, the committee has been quite secretive about what this next session will cover, but we are expecting that the hearing will include information about Trump advisor Roger Stone's activities leading up to January 6, which were those activities were largely erased. The hearing could also include testimony for witnesses that have been interviewed since the committee's last hearing, including Ginny Thomas, that's the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. But of course, Nathan, the big question that we are all asking and waiting to see is will the committee make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice? The House Committee doesn't have any power to bring charges against anyone, even if it uncovers evidence of a crime, but it can refer that information on to be investigated. And right now, the Justice Department is probing the January 6 attack and the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So potentially any information that comes out of these hearings could be used by the Justice Department to, to persecute or to charge someone. Okay, Catherine, thank you so much for your time. From New York City, that is Catherine Furkin. You're listening to First Up here in RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. It's bang on 10 past five. Well, the aftermath of Thursday's mass shooting in Thailand is beginning to unfold. So, uh, and a warning, some details in the story may be disturbing for listeners. So latest reports suggest that at least 38 people, including 24 children, have died after a former police officer opened fire at a childcare facility in the northeast of Thailand. I asked the Washington Times Bangkok correspondent Richard Ehrlich for the latest. Well unfortunately uh, we're waiting now for Tuesday when they will have these mass cremations and these are going to be royally sponsored because the king has given his attention to this case personally. He went up to the scene and when he royally sponsors a cremation that means all stops are taken out. There's honors given and it's a it's a very somber affair especially it's going on at three different temples up there uh, it's a, it's a grim time oh that's a, what a what a horrible um, situation to have to be so how will it work will it be will they do all the, is it like a mass funeral procession that heads to these different temples uh, yes, uh, this will be on Tuesday. They'll either do it at, at the three different temples or bring them all together at one temple. I think that perhaps they might just keep it at the three different temples. The bodies of these children and the adults that were killed um, are going through these Buddhist rituals that are popular here in Thailand. When someone dies, the body is washed. The family is gathered to collect uh, the bones after the cremation. The uh, Buddhist monks have been chanting uh, virtually nonstop since the cremation ceremonies have begun. Mm. And uh, it's just a very sad thing, but it's a very community thing. It brings people together, brings the family and survivors together. Unfortunately for many of the babies, the, the, the two-year-olds, the three-year-olds, the, the parents stay in the temple next to it because they like to keep company of the casket and the dead body because they feel the spirit might be lonesome on its way to the next world. So the the community in general then, you've got such sadness going on, it's a very unusual, you know, kind of cremation in that there. Is it angry? Is it sad? What 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 do you feel the mood is like there? 
Well, there's unfortunately all these different uh, emotions going around. There is, of course, the sadness, um, uh, just this kind of a death chall. There's confusion as to why. And yes, there is anger. And a a lot of it is lashing out at the government uh, saying, first of all, the police department. uh, Why didn't you monitor this guy? He was a known methadrine user. He had a trial coming up. Why didn't you, you know, kick him off the force earlier and take away his right to have a gun? That's another problem. He had his own personal legal gun. And it since turns out that since this um, mass massacre, as we can call it now, is a Police in Thailand have a, have a little thing where when they become a former police and they quit the force, they're able to buy their gun at a discount, and a lot of cops do. So you've got a lot of ex-cops running around with their own guns, basically. So he had access to guns. You, you mentioned there there might have been a drug problem there involved. Has it been called a terror attack yet? Or, I mean, do we even know what the gunman's why was? No, we don't, and I may never know what his motive was. And of course, he also used a knife. So people that are saying that you know the gun laws are too lax or something, saying you know he he also did this. It's basically a psychiatric case. I think people people are coming to understand that uh, fueled by this methadrine use that he had in the past. Even though one of the autopsies, the initial autopsy, said no, he hadn't taken methadrine in the past seventy-two hours, but. Of course, he's been doing it for for a couple of years. The damage has been done. Also, the financial problems. Uh, It seems to be a pressure. It's a domestic case in in many ways. Uh, He's kicked off the police. Uh, He's got um, debts to pay. His his son, or some newspapers are calling it his stepson, is, uh, you know, three years old. He's got a wife. He's building up in this anger. And, of course, most people don't go out and kill people. His case, he was psychiatrically inclined to do so, and uh, he killed everyone. Uh, so if people are looking more at a domestic dispute that, you know, he was in arguments before, uh, his kid was supposed to be at the center and hadn't been there, this kind of a thing. That's Richard Ehrlich in Bangkok. It is a quarter past five. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Raderdy. I'm keen for your feedback. Low voter turnout all around the nation. Don't try and pretend all of you voted because you didn't, all right? It's just the numbers just say, statistically they say. I believe our audience would have a higher number of voters in it. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, but anyway, I would like to know, did you vote in your local elections? And, and also, if it's a no, just tell me why. Even if it's, even if it's as simple as, can we bother... Uh, I'd mean I did, but I didn't post the envelope. Anything like that you like. Also, too, Aucklanders, uh, your new mayor didn't really have any policies, but he said he's going to fix it. So uh, what is it that he should be fixing? There we go, 2101. What is it that should be fixed in the big in the, uh, the super city? And also, did you vote in your election? So I just want to know. Yes or no, I'm just curious. Email us first up at rnz.co.nz or 2101. Uh, it is Monday morning in our time, so we cross to Europe right now where Nita Blake-Person is with us. Morning, Anita. How are you? Kia ora, Nathan. I'm warm and well. How about yourself? I'm pretty good. I had a week off from the news cycle. It was lovely. But then when I opened my phone and had a look yesterday, this explosion on the bridge between Crimea and Russia. Um, Tell me, what do we know about this attack? Do we know who's behind it? 
Yeah, it was pretty dramatic footage, wasn't it? Well, no one has claimed responsibility yet. Uh, Russian authorities have launched a criminal investigation into exactly what's got on there. That that blast, you might have seen the the video, it killed three people. Yeah, incredible stuff. Hey, so, so far, Russia's claimed a truck bomb was responsible for that massive blast, but divers were scheduled to begin looking into the damage today. Moscow hasn't blamed anyone specifically, but the head of the Crimean parliament said the bridge was damaged by Ukrainian vandals, so they've been quite clear. Uh, Ukraine certainly hasn't condemned the attack. Um, That bridge plays a massive strategic role for Russia in getting supplies to its troops in Ukraine, and it's also just very symbolic. It's a massive bridge, 19 kilometres long, and kind of a physical representation, if you will, of Moscow's claims on that Crimean peninsula. So for Ukrainian Ukrainian authorities, they said it was a legitimate target for them. And while they haven't claimed any responsibility either, President Volodymyr Zelensky acknowledged the incident this weekend in one of his addresses. He said, today was not a bad day and mostly sunny on our state's territory. Unfortunately, it was cloudy in Crimea, although it was also warm. So make of that what you will, but it does seem rather uh, thinly veiled to me. Yeah, um, there's also been an attack in a city, going to try and say this right, Zaporizhia. Um, hopefully I've said that right. How many have been killed there? Beautifully pronounced. Uh, the missile attack came in overnight, so there are, uh, you know, conflicting reports about how many people have been killed. Uh, At least 12 people are said to have died, but it may have been up to 17. The latest reports say about 49 people, including six children, are said to be in hospital after this this Russian shelling. There's been some speculation that this was in retaliation for the the bridge blasts, and it is the second strike to have hit Zaporizhia this week. So just to distinguish as well, this shelling is happening in the city of Zaporizhia, which is about 120 kilometres from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which we're also hearing a lot about in the news at the moment. That that plant is the largest in Europe and it's currently held by Russian forces, but both Ukraine and Russia have been blaming each other for shelling at the site and you can imagine that that would have some pretty diabolical consequences if there was a, a nuclear accident there. I bet there would be. This, this event every year that just captures uh, a, a continent and Australia, uh, the Eurovision contest, I know Ukraine was supposed to be hosting the 2023 event. That's not going to be now, obviously. Where where is it going? Yeah, it was supposed to be their turn. The the Kalush Orchestra won, and so it was supposed to go to uh, Mariupol had been the the hope. But as we know, they've um, been pretty heavily bombed this year and the war still going on. It had to head elsewhere. So UK being the the runners-up to this year's competition, uh, they took the the mantle of the country. But as for City, it came down to Liverpool and Glasgow, and Liverpool won out. So the aim uh, for next year's contest is to celebrate Ukraine Ukraine in Liverpool with artists and cultural exchanges and things like that. Apparently statues right across the city will be dressed in Vinox. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And the, the traditional Ukrainian headdresses that have become a, a symbol of resistance during this uh, fight against Russia. It'll be a massive event. There's the two semi-finals and then a four-hour grand final and uh, more than 160 million people from around the world tuned into the events in Italy this year. So a huge spectacle. Apparently work uh, will start on the the organisation in Liverpool in the next few weeks and the Liverpudlians and organisers say their aim is to put on a party to make Ukrainians proud. Well, I can't wait to see a picture of you in, in your Vernock. There we go. Uh, Nita, Blake Person, who joins us there from Europe. 
20 past five, Nathan Rarere, you are listening to First Up here at RNZ National. I'll tell you what, he was re-elected in a landslide. Um, not just the Mayor, but also the Minister of Fruit and Veg, Glenn Forsyth. He is next up. Also Nick Smith too. It just, he just can't leave politics alone. He's a new Mayor now, so we'll be speaking to him before we hit six. I have bought a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in the air. Big ones, small ones, Joining me now from the fresh produce markets is the Minister of Fruit and Veg. He is Glenn Forsyth. Morning, Glenn. Morning, Nathan. Welcome back. How are you, sir? Very good. Thank you, sir. Um, I understand that I've arrived back in a good week because it's looking up in the veggie aisle after a long winter. Tell me about the sunshine that is shining upon that aisle. Oh, that's right. It's been a rough ride for the past three, four months on vegetables here and in Australia, and a lot of people headed to the freezer options in-store as fresh prices got very high. However, the good news is, walking around the floors, a lot of those veggies we think of when we have a barbecue, they're all boosting in supply and here for the next several months. So for the salad, that includes lettuces, tomatoes towards the weekend once they filter out of here today, avocados, cucumbers and capsicums. And it doesn't stop there. You know, for the hot grill, courgettes, onions and asparagus. And now a lot of our friends have had their first barbecues on the weekend just gone and one group trialled some whole smaller eggplant in the upper grill part constantly turning until fully char grilled then they let them cool peeled off the skin and sliced and diced them in you know to add into their garden salad and so that must that you know must try that so that sounds appetizing indeed so yeah lots of things you can do there with eggplant yeah where i think i think we are about 45 percent of the world uh, eggplant market is eaten in our kitchen <laughs> so I'll, I'll add that one to it oh um, Excellent. Now, tell us about this, mate. I mean, there's some divisive things in the world right now. Um, kale. Tell me about kale. Well, it keeps coming back at us. And, and look, let, let's try this. And so on vegetables, even though we just named eight vegetables early in better supplies for this, this second week of the school holidays, there are a few more on the list to look at for also indicating we own a buyer's market now. This is great news as well. Two weeks out from Labor Weekend is that's when the floodgates really open here in New Zealand for fresh produce. So other veggies in good supply today were hot, white butter mushrooms, orange kumara, USA fresh garlic and Australian green round beans. But here's another snippet, for, again from the barbecue files on the weekend, concerning kale. Wash it whole, remove the woody stems, dry out and then spray with olive oil, dash of salt and pepper and bake in a tray on in the oven until crispy. Not brown crispy though. Now let that go cold, break it all up and sprinkle it all over the top of your massive bowl of garden salad and favourite dressing. Now the feedback here was it was nutty, salty, crunchy, uh, replaced the sensation of croutons and not to mention yummy. Now that all came from someone who wasn't a kale fan Nathan so maybe try that and see, and see what you think. Okie dokie, 2101 as well if you're out there in the kale, in Team Kale, let us know why Kale. Uh, also, as the song okay. says, I mean this is one of our things we have for you, Glenn, as, as the song says, you've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, tell us about those. Yeah, well, um, on fruit, three lines bursting at the seams this week and flavoursome as well. Are grapes from the USA, a four mandarins from Australia and New Zealand lemons still in great supply. And two newer lines worth mentioning on the floors this morning are fresh summer and coconuts. We have a lovely relationship with them and sell a lot of them here. So they're available good supply this week. And a flush of early season blueberries from Blue Royal and a little birdie told me at a new lower price at uh, New World in the New North Island this week. Great timing on avocados last Friday being fruit of the week as avocados New Zealand have come out with some amazing 
crazy new recipes, they introduce them as a versatile, healthy, and oh-so-delicious. Now, whether it's on toast and guacamole, elevating a salad, or in a smoothie, New Zealand avocados can be a healthy part of every meal, uh, every day of the week. They say don't just have a good day, they have cheekily coined the phrase, avo good week. Now, their website is incredible, though, and well worth a look at on www dot nzavocado.co.nz they do a great job and it's really time to get behind our avocado growers and, and eat plenty of them beautiful thank you very much glenn kale coconuts no trying to find another ca- crisp crispy there we are crispy. <laughs> Sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. The 10th of October already, I know. This is the uh, the day that we've called it through history, and what a day it was when when Pierre Lorillard walked into the dinner at Tuxedo Park in New York, and they went, oh, what is this outfit? Where are the tails? He wasn't wearing tails because they got in the way of his dancing. He's taking them off his thing. Why isn't his bow tie white? He's wearing a black bow tie. I don't know why, but how's Pierre? Yeah, Pierre Lorillard walked into uh, the autumn ball, the first autumn ball, in his tailless satin lapel dinner jacket. They said, what's that? And he looked around at Tuxedo Park and said, I call this the Tuxedo. So there you are. That's uh, Pierre Lorillard debuted it on this day in 18. 18- 86. Nowadays, of course, you see it a lot in, um, a lot of families have this one, you know, the wedding photo of the, the wedding with the groomsmen where they all think they look pretty cool, but the New Zealand, the black wraparound sunnies, stop doing that in the wedding photos. Stop it. Um, on this day in 1911, Jack Daniel died. According to legend, this is the booze guy, according to legend, he died of blood poisoning from a wound incurred while kicking a safe because he'd forgotten the combination. On this day in 1969, a lot of car trips with tape decks um, got there. Well, this is where it started. The Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack was recorded by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice on this day in 1969. Uh, Fiji said bye, gained independence from Great Britain in 1970. Uh, the movie Kill Bill came out in 2003. And some special birthdays today. David Lee Roth is 68 years old today. And Lance Cairns, he can still hit six sixes with one hand. He's 73 years old. Love the face. It's business, it's business time That's what you're trying to say, you're trying to say Let's get down to business, it's business time It's business, it's business time And from the business team, it is Giles Beckford Morning to Giles Morning to you Nathan, welcome back Good to hear your voice, I think last time we spoke together Jib was um, valued just slightly above platinum it um, was indeed. You remember weight. we were gripped by the panic, the yes. moral panic of the lack of jib board. You couldn't you couldn't sell your firstborn and get a sheet of it. That's how scarce <laughs> it was. But uh, it would seem, uh, I know everybody was talking about the crisis. It would seem the crisis has eased a bit. It's not over, but it's certainly eased a bit. Uh, it would appear from what we're hearing from building supply firms uh, and builders, that uh, more of it has come into the country from overseas. So there was one sort, you remembering that Simplicity was importing theirs from Thailand. Uh, and, of course, more supplies were coming in from Australia as well. There were different types of uh, jib board, plas- plaster board, we should say, probably, uh, which was um, elephant board was one that was being named. Yes. So those supplies have come in. Fletcher... 
building, if you remember, said it was changing its processes and was going to try and uh, eke a bit more production out of its own factory uh, that it's got, and they would appear to do that. And the other part of the equation would seem that just a general slowdown in uh, big uh, building projects uh, in particular has uh, has also helped. So uh, a little bit more supply, a little less demand. One builder tells us that uh, you, know, you might not be able to rush along to your local Mitre 10 or uh, placemakers or whatever and, and grab a couple of sheets. That might still be in short supply in some areas. But if you need a house lot, then uh, you'll probably be in luck. You probably only have to wait about a month rather than six or seven months, as we were hearing earlier. So, crisis not quite over, but you would just say easing quite a bit. Beautiful. Thank you very much. There he is, uh, Giles Beckford. Uh, that's good news, everybody. The jib crisis is is nearly over. Thank goodness. Unfortunately, that whole container load of jib that I've just bought in to um, make jewellery out of, might have to change the plans for that one. But anyway, you can hear more from our learned business team on Morning Report this morning at 10.27. Let's go and see how your New Zealand dollar is trading around the world at the moment. Currently at 56.11 US cents, 88.27 Australian cents, 57.5 Euro cents, 50.6 British pence, uh, four Chinese won, and 81.54 Japanese yen. And with it, this is great. This is live in studio. It's RNZ Sport comes to you. Kia ora, Felicity. How are you? Good morning, Nick. <laughs> okay, so um, huge weekends uh, to cram stuff in. I, can I just quickly jump in on the sports front? I was watching the start at 17-0. We're down to Australia, and I'm like, oh, no, this is going horribly. No, this is Is that awful. the moment you looked away? Yeah, it was, and then and then it started happening. So I had to watch the the Black Ferns game from out in the kitchen, <laughs> right? Because that's when the points started happening. Maybe we should always put you in the kitchen. Yeah, I think I will. That's generally where I'll be. So I had to just duck around the side and then have a bit of a look again. But take take us back across it first. Um, opening weekend of Rugby World Cup. 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in 2022. Um, so a couple of blowout scores, as you were mentioning with that 17-0, it was that first half hour. Maybe mm. they're a bit overawed by that occasion there. But came back, 41 unanswered points, seven tries. It's pretty good, isn't That's it? It's pretty amazing, yeah. Yeah. Earlier in the day, a couple of other sort of blowout scores in that way as well. Um, England over Fiji, they ran in 14 tries. Mm. So England are the, you know, tournament favourites, and this is Fiji's first World Cup. So you know, maybe a blowout score in these situations as yeah. well. And it's probably going to show a little bit with the fitness and conditioning in some of these teams as well that maybe can't hold on for that whole 80 minutes. Yeah, because the, the English and the French, they've had a huge amount of financial backing, haven't they? Until yeah. I th- wasn't it just, or the, might have just been pulled on England, not recently, but very recently. But I know that they've they've had a lot of that. I mean, they've been building for this because obviously they were the professional team when um, the sort of semi-pro Black Ferns um, beat them. What was the last? Was it last World Cup round, wasn't it? One before, wasn't it? Yeah. So... I guess it's the, the yes, funding has been big for them. Yeah, t- since 2019, there's a real injection into the professionalism in the English side, and I think they're really starting to see the fruits of that now. Yeah, uh, and there was some cricket on yesterday, yesterday evening too. The Tri-Series yeah. down in Christchurch. Black Cats finally got their first win of that Tri-Series against Bangladesh. Eight-wicket win. 
Devin Conway and Kane Williamson rescuing it after all of these dropped catches during that first innings there as well. Spinner friendly as well, Ish Sodi and Michael Bracewell picked up a couple of wickets each for New Zealand in that innings. Made Ish Sodi only the third New Zealander to have taken 100 T20 international wickets. Oh, is that right? Behind Tim Southey and Sophie Devine. There we go. Go wish. I mean, let's. Gee, it's. I mean, well, I guess it's holiday time, isn't it, for school holidays? So it is a good time uh, for tournaments to be happening. Well, it's a quite a quick turnaround. Four games in five days. Yeah. Um, a bit of a build up for the World Cup, T20 World Cup in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Felicity, thank you very much for your time. Uh, yes, you can catch more from uh, the uh, Radio Sport uh, desk right across uh, the RNZ Sport desk right across uh, the day. Uh, with me now, though, we're going to switch to politics, and it is the new mayor of Rotorua, Tanya Tapsell, is with me. Morning, Tanya. How are you? Morena, I am still over the moon and ready for my first day as Mayor of Rotorua. Yeah, I was going to say, you, now, I, I had a quick read about you. You've been into, uh, I guess, politics for a very long time. Was it 14 years old and you're heading off down to youth parliament? Is that correct? Yes, well, I started at 14 on youth council and by 16 I was getting to sit in the green seats for youth parliament. Um, so an excellent experience and um, really the start of what became a passion for serving the community um, and probably a bit of a hard way through politics but yeah. um, all this time and I'm still enjoying it and ready to take on one of the biggest roles um, that I'm very humbled to do. What is it that speaks to you uh, about that world? Well, for me, it's just the importance. So even at that age um, and having those experiences, and at the time uh, there were very little Māori uh, involved in politics, but also in many of our local government and our councils, um, not very many um, women or virtually no young people. Mm. So it was a really eye-opening moment where it's, well, these are people that are making decisions that affect our everyday lives, yet there wasn't that diversity. So started off just, you know, in advisory groups with youth councils and such, but eventually when you're giving your feedback and you feel like nothing's being done, there comes a time where you think, okay, we can talk about this, guys, or we can just try and make that change ourselves. And to be honest, that's kind of how it happened. I chucked my name in the hat um, to stand forward or should a council at 21 years old, and here we are now, nine there years old. Yeah. Okay, so um, let, let's have a look at some of the issues you've got. If, if I see Rotorua a lot in the news, I say, you know, one of the ones which comes in is, is the emergency housing situations in the hotels and stuff like that. So first off, uh, the housing issue around Rotorua, is it something that you will become involved with and can you help? And are there other things that you want to look at too? Yes, so the emergency housing has been a particularly troubling um, end of the spectrum of housing. So, you know, across the country, housing affordability, you know, has gone through the roof. Poor first home buyers or anyone downgrading is now looking up to a million dollars just for, you know, a very average three-bedroom home. But here at Rotorua, um, through the lockdowns in um, COVID-19, uh, we ended up inundated with emergency housing motels. And unfortunately, that's all people are hearing about Rotorua. So in our first lockdown, more than two years ago, we gathered all of our known homeless in Rotorua and we started with two motels. We now have over 50 operating in just our district. And so the big question has to be asked, where did these people come from? So that has been really disappointing. We have had many people from outside of the district. And for us here in Rotorua, we've done our fair share to try look after our own. But the 
impact of having so many people using our motels, which remember are supposed to be tourism accommodation, using them for residential, which they're not even consented for. Yet the government's paying twenty-four to thirty million dollars on it in order to do a loan. It does need to be addressed, and this has actually become our biggest issue here for us in order to do it. Well, Tanya, thank you so much, uh, Your Worship, for being with us this morning. I hope we talk again soon. Uh, There we are, the Mayor of Rotorua, Tanya Tapsell. It's 20 to 6, and Nathan Rarere, uh, you're with first up here in RNZ National, so we're going to squish in quite a bit of mayoralty between now and the top of the hour. Uh, Wellington's new mayor is with us, also the mayor of Thames, uh, Coromandel, and uh, a familiar name who's the new mayor of Nelson. Well, Nelson has a new mayor, one who will be a familiar face for the Upper South Island city. Nick Smith, uh, the MP for Nelson until 2020, secured a comfortable victory, leading by almost 4,000 votes, with about 90% of the votes counted, so they went, yep, that's the mayor. And I spoke to him yesterday. Kira, very exciting opportunity. Been a privilege to be this community's Member of Parliament for a long time, but actually really looking forward to focusing on those local issues that Council are responsible for. Well, hang on, let's focus on that. You'd nearly escaped from politics, Nick. You'd crawled out of the pit, and you were nearly there, out to the light, and it's dragged you back in. What drew you back into it? I really enjoyed the last 15 months back in the construction industry, building wind palms, actually, in the Palmerston North. Mm. But when I retired from Parliament, I sort of promised the wife I'd be home a lot. And uh, being the commute to Palmerston North rather than Wellington every week didn't quite meet that criteria. Mm. And so when the current mayor, uh, Rachel Reese, announced her retirement, my wife and I talked about it and I thought, well, this is a lovely way in which I can still be home but still continue my passion for uh, public policy and work. Well, actually, that's a, just a thing to notice, you know, because quite often people change jobs, a similar sort of job in a different setup. What's the difference between being an MP in Parliament and being, you know, involved in local politics? Well, there are a different set of issues. Now, quite clearly, it's far more localised in that it's about, you know, managing all those things like the rubbish and the pipes and the footpaths and the library and the parks and all those things. Mm. But there's a real gritty homeless to it in the sense that these are things that really impact on people very directly. Sometimes Parliament can just feel very distant and sort of disconnected from people's daily lives. So I'm really looking forward to that part. And then there's the the, the fact that it's a lot smaller. You know, government can get so big that it's almost impersonal. Mm. The thing, the joy of council-type work is that it's uh, very close in. I, I guess one of the things, too, is, you know, smaller budget to deal with, but like you say, more localised projects and stuff. So, you know, you've had a chance to think about what you would like to do. Currently, before you've had a chance to properly see these things, what, what do you see right now as the top priorities that you're expecting to have to take care of? Well, the absolute top priority is responding to those horrendous floods and landslides to be the worst infrastructure that damage that Nelson has had in 30 years. We've got over 100 property owners who uh, have got major damage to their house, have worked at the front line of that work with uh, the earthquakes in Christchurch, uh, as well as the Kaikoura ones, know how draining that can be, and so really determined to try and get good decisions, building back more resiliently, trying to make sure that the burden on the rate payer is not too much, and obviously trying to get a timely outcome. And so that will be a big focus for the council's work over the next 18 months. Obviously, it's tens of millions of dollars of infrastructure. There's an extra vulnerability in the meantime, uh, while all those landslides are exposed. I never thought 
in June when I made the decision to stand for mayor that having a PhD in landslides would be any use at all. Well, uh, with the number that have come, uh, then uh, it's not that you're doing the practical work, but you know the questions to ask and really determined to get a, a good resilient answer for the Nelson community. Right, so I mean, yeah, the, which which is fantastic. You do have a, a far bigger idea on stuff. Do you think you can do it all on rates take alone, or will you have to try to no, get to no, look, government? Look, look. Oh, it's going to be absolutely essential for us to have government support. It's actually fair. You know, the, the Nelson taxpayers contributed to the massive costs associated with Christchurch and Kaikoura. The scale of the event that Nelson had is just way beyond being able to be covered by the rate par alone. Mm. And so it's going to be really important to have those relationships in Wellington and ensure that we get some support from them. All right, so tell me about you wander into your office there, you've got your first meeting, you'll have some that, you know, shared your political philosophy, you have others that don't. Tell me about the meeting that you've got there and how do you envisage your group working together? Well, I had a good meeting this morning with uh, Pat Doggerty, the Chief Executive of the Council, and there are a range of quite urgent issues, big challenges on lots of fronts. First big challenge is around the council itself. It's been well documented that there's been a pretty toxic culture around the council table. Mm. That cannot be magically fixed. To rebuild that is going to take time and equally the relationship with staff. I'm quite worried about the council's finances. They're facing all the same pressures that businesses and households, you know, inflation 8%, construction inflation closer to 18% is going to really knock the council budget around. And, of course, the council's got north of $100 million worth of debt, and those interest rates going through the roof is going to hit council just as it is households. And so that's going to be a really important area to get here around. And then we've got some other related big issues. You know, the um, library is closed, the main library, due to problems with the earthquake status of the roofing tiles, similar issues in Civic House. So that built infrastructure has got challenges on, on lots of fronts. No way is it going to be possible to deliver any sort of instant solution. It's just going to be about setting good foundations, good relationships, and then systematically working each of those issues through over the next three years. That's Nick Smith. Well, the professionals of Morning Reporter up after six uh, with a bit of a preview of what is happening on today's show. It's Guy and Espinar. Are you, are you having a very mere, merry kind of Monday? Yeah, we've heard of it. A night, a nightmare. This is a morning mayor, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. We just heard from Nick Smith there. I mean, he's one of a number of centre-right mayors who have have taken taken power. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's the big political swing, isn't it? So we're going to talk to the Prime Minister about this. She has her uh, regular Monday uh, morning interview. But what message does she take, and, and and how can it translate across to central politics? We'll talk to her about that. Mm. About whether we need change in the in the system for local government voting that turn out again very poor. Uh, Pathetic votes. Yeah. Pathetic. I trust, I trust More people went to Costco on the opening day <laughs> and lined up than that, so I don't know what it is. Unless you have to have a giant bag of Doritos when you're voting, maybe that's what will bring them in, I don't know. Yeah, your, your papers aren't still on the top of the fridge, are they, mate? No, I actually, do you know, I posted mine in, but I found that actually with the envelope, each had to do some real special origami to do it right, <laughs> so that the address would fit in the window, because when it said put it back in, it's I like, did this doesn't too, work, actually, you know that, eh? You're banging it with the hammer, like, yeah, right, I think Well, I looked good. at mine and then I saw it was a big blank, so I had to sort of take it out and put it back in. Yeah. But anyway, I, I, I did my civic duty. You did. Um, so we'll talk to her about uh, talk to her about that. And we'll look back at the weekend uh, with the Black Ferns. That was pretty cool, wasn't it? <sighs> Heart-stopping. Yeah. Like I was, I was telling Felicity Reid before, I had to watch from the kitchen because that's when we started doing well. 
and I'm one of those. Oh, I'm a sports was, superstitious person. Right, so that was the that was the once mm, we were seventeen. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, bugger this! I'm in the kitchen. What did we skip? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So now I've got to look around the corner. But then when it gets a little right. worrying, I duck back in. Well, can you stay in the kitchen for the rest of the tournament? Yes, right? yeah. I will. Right. I'll do that. Thank you very much, <laughs> Guy Espinar, who's of course up after six. Well, yeah, as you heard, centre right candidates uh, won big in the local elections over the weekend, which some commentators saw as a rebuke of the current government. One of the few candidates to buck that trend was former Green Party chief of staff. Tori Farno, who is the new mayor of Wellington. So I asked how she managed to succeed where so many other centre-left candidates failed. Oh, look, I've been campaigning for a year and I, I wrote a pretty solid campaign strategy and I stuck to it. It was just like a consistent, positive vision the whole time. And I think in Wellington in particular, people were really craving for a mayor that they could either like relate to or be inspired by because that's just not what we had. And then the rest is history. <laughs> so uh, do you think that having the Prime Minister and Labor's endorsement ended up being a bit of a poison chalice for, for Paul Eagle, who finished way back and forth? No, 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 not necessarily. I just, I think, look, and, and Paul is a friend of mine, and, and we got on really, really well this whole time, but uh, there were just kind of like a series of mishaps throughout his campaign, and um, and, and it was unfortunate, and I think that turned a lot of people toward me. So there's campaigning for the mayoralty, there's visions of it, now it's actually here. Do you, do, I mean, do you have a clear priority in your head of what the first priority will be? Yeah, and this, this sounds probably pretty boring, but it's incredibly important to me. I really want to work on that internal stuff first. So um, the council has been perceived as, you know, disunity and, and infighting for quite some time. So I really want to bring that team together and, and build a really strong team. And that includes the council staff as well. Mm. And that's all about laying the foundation to actually then getting our projects ahead. And I also want to really review the our, uh, like our democratic system and our consultation process as well, because people don't trust our council. They don't trust that they're making the right decisions. So what can we do to rebuild that trust? And then, of course, just kind of get into the pipes. Get those pipes fixed. I was going to say, the, I mean, the pipe's such a huge thing. Around New Zealand, I think a lot of mayors that ran against Three Waters uh, have, have got in. So I, I just wonder, yourself for the, for the pipes in Wellington and the finances and stuff, what, what do you know about how big that job is? What have you been able to see? And is it possible for the council to fix this alone? Yeah, it is. It's 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 a massive job, and the and the council's actually put aside two point seven billion already to invest in our pipes. What concerns me is that that cost is probably going to blow out, and I personally would support utilising three waters just for that extra support. And in the long term, it just it, it, it will just create a better process to sustain our pipes in the long term, and um, have less of an impact of the pockets of of our uh, ratepayers. Yeah. You know, one of the things you stood on as well was quite a strong environmental platform in your campaign. Mm. So, you know, including big focus on things like improving public transport. Tell us about that and how you see that playing out ideally. Yeah, for me, so I'm quite big on how do we lower our emissions as quickly as possible? And there are two big ways to do that was really pushing through our public transport system. So whether that's light rail or or whatever, just increasing our bus service, improving it, making it more efficient creating more walkable streets, pedestrianisation, and, of course, the full cycleway network. And also just higher-density housing right in the middle of the city is one of the good ways too. I'm also really, really keen to work with central government to align our climate strategies to just make sure we're on the same page. Um, And I'll be opposing things like 
airport extension or, or big projects that would increase our emissions. I've already been in touch with Minister Shaw uh, and the Prime Minister and I'm just, oh, I can't wait to get started. <laughs> now, you know, you mentioned there the, you know, what wanting uh, a better form of public transport in there. Uh, I'm just wondering, when you come up, are you familiar that you might have perhaps councillors you're going to have to work harder to get across the line to agree with Yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and, and look, and, and I will respect that process as well. Like if if, if I'm if something is voted against, oh, catapai, we'll we'll move on. Mm. But I will be um, trying to influence, negotiate, compromise uh, to get certain things across the line. Um, that, that'll be a massive part of the role, but something that I'm quite good at as well. Yeah. As we look around the, the, the country, quite a low turnout for local elections, mm, really. Yeah. Um, have you got any idea of what, you know, what does the voting process need to change? Or, oh, it definitely you know, it, does. So how, what, what can we do to, to get more it, people involved and realising that their votes count? We need to move it to the Electoral Commission, for one, and have them manage it like uh, they would for the general election. We should do away with postal voting. I mean, so many people didn't receive their voting papers. And, like, I quite like the lengthy voting period, Mm. but let's go back to the classic in-person voting, voting booths all across the city or all across towns. And uh, as has been the case with other media, we tried very hard uh, to book Auckland's um, new mayor, Wayne Brown, that you think he's fixing things. Uh, he spent yesterday with his family and reported that today he wants a full briefing on Auckland's council's books. Um, so, yes, uh, we hope to bring you an interview with Mayor Brown at some stage this week. But um, speaking of interviews, few interviews that we've played here received as much feedback as when we spoke uh, to the former mayor of Thames Coromandel, Sandra Gowdy. Uh, Ms Gowdy is gone and Len Salt is in and uh, is the new mayor. Kia ora, your worship. How are you? Ata Marie, I'm I'm very well, thank you. Are you used to Are you used to your worship yet? No, I'm not. I probably never will get used to that. <laughs> <laughs> Just call me Len. Okay. So, what is it? First day on the cards for you at the new job today? Is it? Yes, I, I live in Fitianga, which is an hour and twenty minutes from Thames. So, um, I've got a couple of interviews this morning, and then I'll head off and I'll. Stop in, in my favourite coffee spot in Tyroo and and um, pick up a brew, and then I'll be at the office in Thames by around nine o'clock this morning. That's not a bad place to stop um, for a coffee, yeah, I it's should fantastic. say. Fantastic, yeah. I was going. I thought you were going to say in Coromandel, I was going to go top top pub or, or bottom pub, but we'll get to that anyway. So tell me this: um, the priorities for your team, and also, um, I mean, you know, Sandra Gowdy left quite the legacy, which was an interesting kind of one. How how many of Sandra's block are left in the council for you and what are the priorities for your team? We've had uh, an interesting election because uh, and one of the great things is we've had some new faces come through. We've got in some ways uh, a younger more diverse mix which I'm really thrilled about. We, we have an unusual or slightly unusual situation because we have five community boards and we've got a very large spread of our um, geographical area. So the the community boards that we've got work right at ground level. And we've got some new faces and some more diverse faces coming through. And some of them are new. They're going to need a lot of support. But there's a, a degree of excitement about being in there and being part of the decision-making process, mm. uh, which is really good to see. 
Well, Len, look, I, I hope that we can catch up uh, during the during the, the coming times. Congratulations uh, on your appointment there as the new Mayor of Thames Coromandel. He is Len Salt, and hopefully we'll have him on the show for you, because we've run out of time, unfortunately, but it's a very merry Monday, as you heard. Uh, morning Report next with Guyon and Kim, and they've got uh, many of that for you. Uh, Nolene voted, said, yep, voted, but not happy. Carolyn Mooney in Tauranga says, hi, Nathan, my commiserations to Nelsonians who did not vote for Nick Smith. His opening line says a lot and not in a good way. I promised the wife. Sad misogynist comment. Another one says didn't vote for me. Nothing advertised at all uh, down our way either in Topol. Got a letter about it only last week. I was confused as heck. Not even aroused over the event. Quite. Morning Report is next with Guyon and Kim from all of us here at First Up. Have yourselves a wonderful day. We're back in your ears. Ha ah, poor. poor.